What do you see when you look into the face of your neighbor? Do you see a stranger? A friend? A foreigner? Or a refugee? Do you see someone to avoid? Someone to hide from? Do you see someone to hate or someone to love? Can you see yourself in their face? Do you see the face of Jesus? Okay, the passage that was read for us is the reason I love Jesus. <laughs> and, and there's lots of passages like that, that as I go through, I read them, and every time I read them, they hit me again. And they hit me again with this, this um, resurgence of faith and a reminder to me of why I am a follower of Jesus. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I lose sight of that in all that goes on and in the complexity of life and even in the complexity of church, it's easy to lose focus of our calling. But then I come to this passage and I'm like, that's Jesus. <laughs> and that's why I follow him. If Jesus is the image of the invisible God, this is it, right? If Jesus is the example to us of what it really means to be human, this is it. And so that's why this passage is so rich and full, and I'm excited to share it with you, and I'm about to do a terrible job, <laughs> because we're only going to be able to scratch the surface. That's my warning this morning, is there's so much in this passage, I really encourage you to go home, read it, and read it again. Read it in community with one another. Read it in community with someone who's very different from you, because, uh, because there's so much here. So... Let's scratch the surface together as best we can, okay? Robert Karras, a commentator, said this. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. I love Luke because of the food references, but I also love Luke because of the people he chooses to highlight all through his gospel. Luke himself is something of an outsider, and he chooses to highlight a lot of outsiders. He starts this whole passage, this whole chapter, uh, with a Roman centurion. And he says, this is faith. From the most unexpected of places, an occupier, part of the great dominion of Rome, this is faith. And people would have been shocked. Uh, and, and later on in the passage, he holds up this woman who comes to him and says, this is faith. Another shocking example of faith. I love that in Luke. So he goes around, Jesus goes around eating and drinking. And he's very unlike John the Baptist. And people point this out. They're like, John the Baptist came to us and he was a true prophet. You know, he ate locusts and wore scratchy underwear. And um, so that was John the Baptist. But now Jesus comes eating and drinking. And they're critical of him for doing so. But we discover things about Jesus while he eats and drinks. Uh, we, we see something of who he really is. Jesus reveals himself at the dinner table. And he also teaches us 
what it means to love our neighbor. Uh, This Wednesday, it's this Wednesday, right, Samuel? Did I start the small group? Okay, good. I just want to get my orders correct. No, we agreed on this. Uh, If you're not in choir and you don't have a small group, come on Wednesday because I'm inviting people together to help me and hopefully help you learn what it means to love our neighbor, what it means to be a good neighbor. I need to learn that again. I'll be honest with you. So this will be an exploration. And that's partly why we're doing this series, because at these dinner occasions, Jesus shows us what it means to be a good neighbor. So today, Jesus is at Simon's house. And I just want to clarify something here, because if you go home and you look up the story, in every gospel, there's a similar kind of story And they have similarities, but also differences. And sometimes the temptation is to panic and say, oh, we have to make all these stories match together. Don't panic, just let them be what they are. Uh, But in some of the stories, we hear about a woman, and sometimes we hear about anointing, and sometimes it's the feet, and sometimes it's the head. But we also hear this character, Simon. But sometimes he's called Simon the leper, and here he's called Simon what? The Pharisee. I'm going to treat Luke's story as a standalone story. I'm not even going to try and synchronize the other stories. Just treat them as standalone stories and you'll get the message. And that's what I'm going to do with Simon because it's a common name. Uh, It's like John or Christine or something like that, right? So lots of Simons kicking around. We're going to look at Simon the Pharisee and allow the story just to stand on its own. Well, Simon the Pharisee decides to invite Jesus over for dinner, but he doesn't hold a feast in his honor, in the honor of Jesus. He's not calling Jesus over to honor him. If you remember last week, Matthew, the tax collector, held a big party, but he held the party to honor Jesus. That's not what Simon is doing here. Why does Simon invite Jesus over? I think It's because Jesus is a bit of entertainment. It's not even to trap him so much. That happens later and happens sometimes. But here, I think Simon's just after the pure entertainment value of having a celebrity guest in his house. And this is what Simon is doing. The houses back then, if you had a big house, there would often be a kind of public section, a section that was open to the public where you could hold special occasions like a feast and everybody in town could see who you've invited over for dinner. And that way, you could kind of build a reputation. So to have a celebrity guest like Jesus, and Jesus was building reputation, was great sort of social um, credit for, for Simon. And so he wanted Jesus over for a bit of entertainment and to boost his image as a collector of celebrities. I think that's what's happening here. And so in this open area, there'd be lots of people around. People would hear about the celebrity guest and they would come and they would watch the meat. They wouldn't participate in the meal unless they got some scraps thrown to them. But then they would wait for what happened after the meal. Do you know what happened after the meal? Something called a symposium. We use that word today, right? And the symposium comes out of this Greek and Roman habit of after you have a meal, you sit around, drink a lot of wine, and have music and conversation. So after the main meal, there was this symposium. And the word symposium literally means drinking together. So when you hear that Pastor Eric is going to a symposium, 
just check his receipts because, no, I, we won't go in there. So this was essentially like a drinking party. After the meal, there would be this symposium held after the banquet, and it would be music and conversation. I think that's what's happening here. And so other people would gather around and would want to listen to the conversation. Sometimes they would chirp in their own two bits, their own two cents into the conversation. And so that's why this woman is able to access, she wasn't a guest, but to access the feet of Jesus. Because while they're having this symposium, they're lounging, right? And their feet are extended. And so they're having a glass of wine, they're having conversation, and that's the scene as we have to set it today. So lots of uninvited guests, including a well-known woman from the city who makes a scene. And, and make no mistake, she makes a scene. There would be absolutely no way to ignore this. This would overtake every bit of conversation, every bit of music, everything that's happening. This woman makes a, a scene. She's not discreet in her affection for Jesus. She's not modest in her display of her love for him. She, in fact, she weeps and cries so much that she produces enough tears to wash feet. Think about that for a moment. That's a lot of tears. That's a lot of wailing. And she's not quiet about it either. In fact, at one point, she lets her hair down in public. And for some of the men gathered around that table, she might, have been, might as well have been topless. Like, honestly, that's how like, scandalous this is. Do you feel uncomfortable yet? I mean, imagine at your table, if, if a scene like this unfolded and you had an unexpected guest, you invited some of your neighbors over, you didn't really know them, and all of a sudden there was this outpouring of emotion. For me, a very reserved kind of British type, that is super uncomfortable. And all of these people around the table would have been incredibly uncomfortable with what this woman was doing, except for Jesus who in his passivity does nothing, no reaction. He doesn't invite her to do more. He doesn't try and comfort her. He just allows it to happen. And it baffles the other guests that are there. Now, as we think about this, I think, at least for me, we are very quick to side with Jesus, right? We want to take Jesus' side. This is good. This is right. This is allowable. But I do wonder if I would have been more like Simon. This is strange. This is unacceptable. What am I going to do about it? Because to be honest, I share a lot of values with Simon in the story. Values like respectability and order and reputation and image. And this was destroying everything. Simon wanted to set up a fantastic banquet in which he had this very important celebrity guest in order to gain a bit of a, a reputation as a collector of celebrities. And this woman was derailing his plans. And I think I might have reacted a little bit more like Simon. What's happening here? What's the lesson we need to learn? What does Jesus reveal about himself? Well, the key to the story that I want to focus on is one line in verse 44. And we don't catch it in the New Living Translation, but most other translations say this. Jesus says, do you see this woman? 
Do you see this woman? Yeah, of course. Of course we see her. You can't help but see her and hear her and probably smell her because of the, the jar of perfume. All of your senses are enacted around this woman. Of course we see her. But Jesus asks it very intentionally, do you see this woman? And in Luke's gospel, that phrase to see or that idea of sight is something that clues us into faith. He's really talking about faith. How Simon saw this woman reveals how he sees Jesus. That's important for us to get because I think it's true of us today as well. How we see our neighbor and treat our neighbor also reveals how we see and understand Jesus. And that's part of the challenge that we see here. Well, there's two ways to see this woman. This, I see, it sounds like I'm saying woman, but I'm saying woman. I'll try and say that more precisely. One woman is here. Okay, there's two ways to see her. One is Simon's view. Let's think about that for a moment. How does Simon see her? He sees her as a sinner. That's the phrase that's used, this sinner, this unclean woman. That's how he views this person. Now remember, sinners, because we have an idea of what sin is, and so we kind of want to impose that upon her. But sinners was a general term covering person, persons who were not allowed to act as judges or witnesses because of their moral unreliability. So she's seen as a morally unreliable person. That could be for a whole host of reasons, as we saw last week. The, the tax collectors and the dice players and the pigeon racers, they were all equally called immor um, morally unreliable. And she is lumped in here as a sinner. But Simon is using this phrase to do what to her? To dehumanize her. It's a dehumanizing designation meant to dismiss this woman as irrelevant, right? And her act as irrelevant. That's how he designates her. And I think as humans in community, we have a long history of using dehumanizing language in order to define who's in and who's out, in order to define us versus them. Think for a moment about some of the dehumanizing terms we use to discredit others who are not us. You can think of a few, and it doesn't take, uh, it's not too hard, actually. I think of my high school days and some of the terms we used for other people, and it was very intentionally used to make them less than us, to dehumanize them. And we find that happening in the passage. In 1994, during the um, genocide in Rwanda, uh, one of the things that we learned that contributed um, to this genocide and the ability of a neighbor to go into another neighbor's house and, and kill the family and take their possessions because that happened. But one of the things they said contributed to that was the use of language because they were trained that the Tutsi minority were cockroaches. That's the language that was used. And once you designate someone as a cockroach, what are you to do with cockroaches? Exterminate them. And so as you look back over the history of that, and I was reading some of that last couple of weeks, you realize that, that this narrative, this meta-narrative that so many bought into, allowed them to do awful things to another human being 
because of the language used that dehumanized that person. But we don't have to go to Rwanda to learn that, do we? In 1883, John A. MacDonald passed a cabinet measure to create three residential schools in the West to be operated by Catholic and Anglican churches. And his idea is that they had to be away from the reserve, away from the homes of the people that were involved. And this is why he said that. That same year, MacDonald told the Commons, when the school is on the reserve, the child lives with his parents who are savages. He is surrounded by savages. And though he may learn to read and write, his habits and training and mode of thought are Indian. He is simply a savage who can read and write. Do you see how terminology matters? What were they doing? Dehumanizing an individual in order to justify a course of action. And so we have to learn from this. And this is what Simon is doing in the story. He's dehumanizing this woman in order to justify his own attitude and his own course of action. This woman is a sinner. What do you do with sinners? Well, you exclude them. So do you see how that, that falls and that comes together? If a person is a cockroach, what do you do? You exterminate them. If a person is a savage, what do you do? You civilize them. If a person is a sinner, according to the Pharisees, you actually don't go out and save them. The Pharisees weren't interested in that. If a person is unclean, you don't go out and, and clean them up. The Pharisees weren't interested in that. You exclude them. Why? Because they're a threat to your own purity. They're a threat to your own safety. And so they need to be excluded. The presence of this woman threatened Simon's sense of security and holiness. And so he wanted to exclude her. This woman is a sinner. You discard these kind of people. So this is the challenge. Because I think actually in our translations and the way that we retell this story, we actually perpetuate Simon's view of this woman. And maybe we do it very um, unconsciously. We, we don't think about it. We don't intend to do it. But we actually perpetuate this perspective. If you have your Bibles open, which you might not right now, but go home and look at it, there's usually a heading to the passage. And the heading to the passage isn't actually part of the inspired word of God. It's someone that's some, something that someone has put in there in order to help us work through the passages, right? But often those headings show our bias. And the heading for this passage is what? Jesus anointed by a sinful woman. Like present tense, sinful. Nothing about the fact that she's been forgiven. Nothing that about the fact that before she came to this encounter, she had a previous encounter with Jesus in which she experienced forgiven. No, a sinful woman is what she's called in the heading. And I think it shows our bias. See, Jesus doesn't call her that. Jesus doesn't treat her as unclean. Maybe we could change the title and change the focus. Maybe we could call it Jesus anointed by a forgiven woman. Maybe that would be better. Or we could say, a woman shows great love. That's the heart of the passage. Or, or maybe we could say this, a courageous act of worship, because that's what it is. It's, it's like the prodigal son. The prodigal son is nowhere, that phrase is not in the passage, but we, we label it as that. Why? Because we focus on his sin. 
I would rather rename that whole passage of the prodigal son a loving father, right? It's interesting how we gravitate toward this. And so we perpetuate Simon's view of this woman unintentionally, I think. But we have to be careful of our bias when we go into this. Um, We also make assumptions about her sin. What was her sin? What was the nature of her sin? You don't need to say it out loud, but... Most of us would say, and I would say, you know, she was a prostitute. Obviously, she's a woman and she's sinning, so therefore, she's a prostitute. Must be. Do you know it doesn't use that language in the passage at all? Unfortunately, in the New Living Translation, it puts in immoral woman because it shows the bias of the translator there. But, but that, that Greek word has nothing to do with sex, It's just a woman who's a sinner. Luke was very good with Greek. (laughs) He knows the word for prostitute. If he wanted to include it, he could have. But here's maybe where our bias is creeping in again, just a little bit, that we assume right away that if she's a woman and she's a sinner, then she must have been a sex worker or something like it. And that actually shows up in some of our paintings. The paintings of this scene, if you go back and, and look through some of the great artists, Um, you know, of the classic era, you'll find the painting is actually of this woman with red hair. You know, red hair symbolized in these old paintings? Uh, Promiscuity, all you redheads out there. Some of you are gray now, so you've kind of been able to hide that now. We won't go into it. But all this, this red hair, she's, she's painted with red hair kneeling at Jesus' feet. And, and sorry for this beyond PG-13, but often her blouse is like undone and there's one breast hanging out, you know. It's like, what are we doing here? That's how you're portraying this woman through the lens of our assumptions about her. And nothing in the passage actually says that. It could be. It could be that she was a sex worker of some sort. Um, but that's not what we're told. In fact, Simon would have called all kinds of people sinners. Here's some of the things that Simon would have called sin, especially as it relates to women in the village. Let's say a woman was barren, had no children, and her husband divorced her, put her away, and no other man would ever touch her. That woman was considered a sinner. There's something wrong with her. There's something that's dubious. She's unclean. Don't touch her. Or maybe, maybe as a woman, she broke the rules of the Sabbath. She left the oven on. Or, well, they didn't have ovens. But she, there's so many rules of the Sabbath. Uh, maybe she helped a neighbor during a Sabbath time. And you're not supposed to even do that. You know, don't, don't, don't work on the Sabbath of any kind. Maybe, maybe that's the nature of her sin. Maybe she had an occupation that put her in touch with dead animals, or maybe she had a medical condition that caused her to bleed. Maybe she was a sex worker. We don't know. That's my point. Be careful of our assumptions, even as we go into scripture, just because Simon calls her a sinner and we jump to the conclusion that it must be sexual doesn't make it so. Certainly not the way that Jesus treats her. Certainly not the way that Jesus views her. And so even as we retell the story, we highlight her sin, her sin instead of her generous worship. So here's the question. Do we see this woman? Do we see her? And do we see the people around us who make us uncomfortable? <laughs> I love when our youth go to the mustard seed, and Eric does a great job of keeping them in connection. 
And if they go to seed serve in the summer, and I'm glad both my girls got a chance to do this, uh, one of the things they do is a day in the life of, and they have to live off of like $2. And, and it's a bit of an exercise. It's, it's, it's not reality, but it puts them in proximity to people who are living and experiencing homelessness. And one of the things they do is they sit and listen to their stories. Because we assume a lot when we see someone on the street, right? We assume a lot when we see someone that's maybe behaving in ways that we're not used to. And we make a lot of assumptions instead of seeing them. Do you see this woman? Jesus and the gospel humanizes our neighbors. Okay, we're going to wrap this up pretty quick. The view of Jesus. How does Jesus view this woman? Simon would use language of sinner, unclean, inappropriate, trash. What words would Jesus use to describe her? Forgiven, generous, courageous, powerful. That's the words I think Jesus would use to describe this woman. In fact, and here I think is the part of the point of the story, Jesus honors this woman as the true host of the party. Where Simon fails miserably, this woman succeeds spectacularly. <laughs> and uh, my favorite line in this whole passage is uh, a little bit before, do you see this woman? It says this, then Jesus turned toward the woman and said to Simon. Isn't that brilliant? I mean, honestly, what a power move that is. Do you get it? He, he, he faced the woman entirely, undivided attention, full respect and honor, and over his shoulder, he says to Simon. Wow, can you imagine everybody viewing that? They're going, oh, stop. Like, that's just amazing what Jesus does here. He turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman. Then he goes on to say a number of things that you really pick up on in the Greek. This, the Greek ha uh, language really highlights what's happening. As Jesus came to be a guest of honor at this place, there were certain fundamental things that you would expect. And Jesus highlights these because Simon forgot all about them, right? So Jesus says, Simon, you didn't give me any water. And he uses a term like just just one off, just a splash, right? But do you see this woman? She's given me a continuous flow of her tears, nonstop faucet, right? You see the difference? You could have given me a drop, but she has given me a generous amount, nonstop, ongoing tears. Simon, you didn't give me a kiss, not even a quick peck on the cheek, right? One time, one stop. This woman has continuously, ongoing, nonstop kissing my feet. That would make me super uncomfortable. I don't like anybody to touch my feet. But anyway, even just reading that goes, oh. But um, that's what she did, right? Simon, no anointing, not even a drop of oil. This woman continuously anointing my feet. This courageous woman <laughs> compensated for Simon's disrespect of Jesus. She's the true host. Simon was a host who failed to host. This woman was a spectacular host who wasn't even a guest. What an amazing thing Jesus picks up on and honors her 
as the true host, as the true authority and leader at this table as he honors her presence there. So Jesus holds this, holds this woman up as our teacher as well, as a shining example of worship. And here's the question for me. Am I willing, are we willing, to be taught by those whom we view as inferior? Right? They could be inferior because they're young and inexperienced. Are we willing to be taught by them? Simon was not willing to be taught by this inferior woman at his table, right? Are we willing to be taught by those who we perceive to be inferior to us? Can we make room at the table and empower others to lead? That's part of the lesson that's here as well. Okay, Simon was so concerned with his safety, his reputation, with his image, that he could not see this woman as Jesus saw her. He could not be led by her. So how do we see our neighbors? Do we see our neighbors through the, uh, the lens of Simon? So concerned um, about our own safety and protection, our own image and reputation? Or can we learn to see others the way that Jesus sees them? That's the challenge in all of this. How do we see our neighbor? Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a name that might be familiar to you. He was a, a German pastor. Um, during World War II. He was actually stood in opposition eventually to Hitler. He even concocted a plan to assassinate Hitler, right? And he was arrested for it and he was put in prison. And right just when everybody was being liberated on that day, he was actually executed and he died. Dietrich Bonhoeffer had a twin sister and his twin sister married a Jewish man which caused a great deal of difficulty in the family because right at the time when the Nazi party and Hitler was saying, you are not to even shop at Jewish stores. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's mom ignored that order. She actually continued to shop at a Jewish grocery store where she always bought her food. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer's twin sister married this Jewish man. Now, he had also been baptized in Lutheran church. But at one point, this man's father died, and Dietrich's sister came to him and said, would you please do us the honor of taking his funeral? And Dietrich refused. Is that a surprise to you? It was such a crisis for him. He actually went to his leaders and his elders, and they said, look, you're not allowed to do it. You can't do it. Um, and, and just think of your, your image, your reputation. This is going to get you in trouble. And so Dietrich actually said, no, I won't do it because he's a Jew and I can't do that. Later in life and while he was in prison, he actually wrote an apology to his sister because he realized the hurt that he had caused to the whole family. And he deeply regretted that he did not honor that Jewish man. And this was his statement. He said, my fear has been stronger than my faith. And he acknowledged that. I wonder how often in my life, my fear has been stronger than my faith. Do we see this woman through our reputation, through our need for safety, through our need for that which is orderly and controlled, do we see our neighbor? When it comes to loving our neighbor, how often does fear get the better of our faith? May we learn to see others as Jesus sees them. Let's pray together.
Father, thank you that you see us, that you see into the depth of our heart. And that's a terrifying thing. And yet you don't turn away. You're, you're not ashamed. You're not repulsed. You love us with a love that is everlasting and unconditional. And to prove that, you sent Jesus. Father, help us to love in the same way that we have been loved by you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.